Well, as you turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to continue in our study of uh, Solomon's life and his quest for meaning, his quest for meaning. Um, and the first uh, two chapters have been pretty uh, dismal, <laughs> a pretty dismal view uh, that there's really no meaning in life. It's all vanity. But last week we had a little breath of fresh air, didn't we? Solomon finally took us uh, to a view above the sun. Everything thus far had been under the sun, but last week he took us above the sun. He was evaluating life just horizontally, and his conclusion was that what, what he saw added up to nothing. It was vanity. Life is meaningless. But then we came to the end of chapter 2, and Solomon brings God into the perspective for the first time, and it causes him to write that wonderful poem in chapter, uh, chapter 3, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. And that poem represents all of human activity. Obviously, Solomon could not write about every human activity because that would fit, fit volumes, wouldn't it? We'd have volumes of books on this. Instead, he, he does it by the number. He has 24 items here, in, or 28, I'm sorry, in 14 pairs, multiples of seven. Seven's God's perfect number, the number of completeness, of fullness, And so he uses that number to speak of the totality of of human activity on life. All of it has has a set time for every event in life. And God has appointed those seasons and times. He's He's done that. And it is the recognition that there is purposefulness in life coming from God's oversight of the seasons, of the times. And that's called providence. We looked at that lengthy definition last week from a theological definition of providence, but I gave you a smaller, more easily remembered and memorized definition, and I have it for you today again. God's providence is his completely holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing. Those are the two key words, preserving and governing every creature and every action. That's the idea that Solomon has uh, here with listing this these, these events, even those strange events. We're going to de- delve more into that today. And he closed with giving us sort of three aspects of God's providence there in verse 14, just to remind you. He said, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. The first aspect was that it's permanent. God's providence is permanent. It's not a temporary thing. It's not as if God is in control just one day, but not another, right? He's, uh, he's providentially governing and preserving all the time. It's permanent. The second thing comes from the second half of verse 14. It says, nothing can be added to it. So it's complete, right? It's not lacking anything. And then thirdly, it's secure because nothing taken from it either, right? So nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. It's, it's, it's forever, right? It's complete. It's secure. But as you think about this, this raises some obvious issues that we did not address last week. If God is in control of everything, of every creature and every action, then why, when we look at the world, do we see injustice? Do we see oppression and evil? Why do we see that, right? That's the question Solomon's going to look at today. Why are those things there? And so he's picking up the theme of of divine control of the times, and he seeks to develop it, uh, specifically addressing those two things, 
but also just looking at the activities of man that he listed there, he's going to pick out a few. Right? You could look at all those activities, a time to break down, a time to kill, a time to tear, you could, a time to hate. He's going to pick out a few of those and dig deeper into them and say, how is God sovereignly in control of these things? What's his purpose in these things? And that's what he does here. So in our passage today, we're going to look at verse 16 of chapter 3 and read to the end of chapter 4. So let's read together. Moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in my heart, concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men, which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes down to the earth? So I perceived that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, I praised the dead who were already dead, more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There's one alone without companion. He is neither son nor brother, yet there's no end to all his labors. Nor is his eye satisfied with riches, but he never asks, For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king. Although he is born poor in his kingdom, I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king, yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely... This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time in your word. And Lord, we just pray that you would guide us with wisdom and insight and with the illumination of the Holy Spirit into this truth that we seek to understand today. God, we want to glorify you with our lives. We want to see the mind of Solomon and what he is looking at. Lord, we live in this kind of world that he describes. And so help us to to see his point clearly, and to see how we might live in spite of it. Lord, thank you for this time. Bless it and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, a really 
easy overall outline today. We're just going to look at three aspects of, of these activities of man that we uh, saw in that wonderful poem. We're going to look at man's power complex, man's selfish condition, and man's popularity contest. <laughs> so first, man's power complex will take us to the end of chapter 3. Uh, look at uh, just uh, verse 16 here. He says, moreover, moreover, I saw under the sun, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. We're going to begin here just looking at how the authority that is given to man, the power that's given to man is often abused, isn't it? It's often used in a way um, that is inappropriate. That's what he's saying here. In the place of judgment, we see weakness. In the place of of righteousness, we see iniquity. Uh, Where are those places today that we can look around and we can see um, where there should be justice, there's there's wickedness. Well, we can start with our governments, couldn't we? Right? We can be, begin there and see that certainly that they are, they're sometimes achieving that, but not all the time. We can look at our governments and see, well, yeah, there is corruption. That man does abuse his power. We can see it in the courts, in the court systems. We can see it in the police. We can see it in the military, can't we? All those things. I mean, the, the big news of, of peach, uh, the impeachment of Trump, right? That's been the news so, uh, so long. It's, uh, to be impeached as a president is a charge that you have abused your power, right? They're charging him for this very thing that Solomon is describing. We've given you power and you've misused it. And Solomon says, I see that. I see this taking place in the world. We can see that. We can see it through history, can't we? We can see it in things like the Spanish Inquisition and the Crusades of the past, right? We can see it through even things like the power and might of of Rome back in the day and the persecution under Nero and Diocletian of the Christians. That's abuse of power. And we can see it even in places that we would think never, we would never expect to see it. We can see it in God's church. We can see it in the Roman Catholic church, Why are all these priests coming under fire? They've abused their position of authority. They've preyed on the weak, right? They have pressed the vulnerable. And so they come under fire. And that's nothing new. I'm going to go back to what he said before. There's nothing new under the sun. King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel persecuted the prophets of God. And he was the king of Israel, the king of God's people. And he's persecuting the prophets of God. Obadiah had to hide them and feed them. Remember that? So we definitely can look around our world today and we can see what Solomon is talking about. And we could conclude things like, well, it would just be better for people to have no one judging them to have those kind of judges over you, right? Or, or it would be better to, um, for the judges to have no power than to use it for evil purposes. And how are those in the place of judgment um, to judge? How are they required to do that? How should they judge? I'm going to take you to a passage in 2 Chronicles. If you want to make a short left-hand turn, chapter 19. 2 Chronicles, chapter 19. King Jehoshaphat is appointing judges, and he tells them exactly how they're to use that power. He's giving them power. He's delegating them uh, some, with some authority. He's giving them, and he tells them how they are to use it. And in 2 Chronicles 19, verse 4. So Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, 
And he went out again among the people from Beersheba to the mountains of Ephraim, and he brought them back to the Lord God of their fathers. Then he set judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, take heed to what you are doing. For you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you in the judgment. They don't judge for man. They judge for who? The Lord. Because the Lord has given them the authority. Remember Pilate and Jesus? Don't you want to be free? Don't you know I have the authority to free you or to kill you? Jesus said what? You don't have any authority unless it had been given to you to begin with from the Lord, right? All authority is given to us from above, and we're called to be responsible with that authority. Yet what we do, we see around the world, man abuses that power. He abuses that authority. And so he, he's looking at that at first. And so what, what reaction do you have? Well, Solomon's reaction is, is, well, I'm assuming they're going to get judged for this. Man's judgment is assumed in verse 17. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. So Solomon saw how judgment was being perverted among men. And so he looks to the one who never perverts judgment. He looks to God. He says, okay, God's going to judge the righteous and the wicked. Does that confuse anybody? Does he judge the, the righteous and the wicked? You remember... Abraham was meeting with the Lord while the angels were going into Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it. Do you remember his little negotiating, bartering thing he was doing with him? Well, Lord, you're surely not going to destroy everyone in this city. Surely you won't destroy it for the sake of 50 righteous. And the Lord says, oh, yeah, I won't destroy it for 50. Oh, okay, I got him with 50. Hey, well, how about 45? I won't, would you, would you destroy, okay, I won't destroy it for 45. Well, how, how, about, how about 40, right? How about 30? How about 20? He gets the Lord all the way down to 10. Abraham, I won't destroy it if I find 10 righteous people. How sad is it that there were not 10? There weren't even 10. It was destroyed. But in Genesis 18, 25, this is what Abraham says to the Lord. He says, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? What's his thinking? That's wrong right? That would be wrong for you to go and destroy everyone when there's righteous people there, innocent people there, people who have done no wrong, but you're the right judge. You should do right. That's what he's thinking, right? And we can look at the world and think the same thing. Well, you've put these people into position. They're they're your people. You've said, "I, I raise up nations. I raise up rulers. I put them down. So if they're your people, is this right? That's the question that brings up, isn't it? But God's going to judge the righteous and the wicked. What's he really talking about uh, here? Turn to Romans chapter 2. I just want to show you really quickly. I think this is what he's talking about. Romans chapter 2. You've got to go all the way to the New Testament now. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Paul develops this idea of God's righteous judgment through this entire chapter here. In chapter 2, beginning in verse um, we'll start in verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're tre- treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath 
tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. I want you to see the rewards there. I want you to see the rewards. What's going to happen to those who, who do good, who continue in doing good? Glory, honor, immortality. But on this earth, here, in this plane, no, in that place, right? But for those who don't, they're going to be judged. He's speaking of, ultimately, we get eternity. Ultimately, we get eternity. Paul kind of develops this theme a bit in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. You don't have to look this one up. I have it for you. And he says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So there is a judgment seat for believers, but it's not a judgment of condemnation. Why? Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ Jesus, it is just a, a judgment of, of what have you done on earth for me, right? Whether good or bad. But there's no condemnation there. So God does judge the righteous and the wicked, but he does that differently. In addition, going back to our passage here, even these evil actions of, of men that we look at here may unwillingly and unknowingly be fulfilling the purposes of God, right? Even those evil things, God might have a purpose in there. And that's what he develops in the second half of verse 17. He said, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. So God does have a purpose there. And, and the purpose is there, mentioned, I mentioned this word last week, is hefitz, hefitz. And it means a desire or a longing. It's speaking about the, the, the men, the willful acts of the men. So there is a time. So that's God's you know, governing of the time of the event uh, for every willful act of, of man. That's what the idea is. And he developed that from chapter 3, verse 1. Even the evil ones. Ah, how's that sit with you? Even the evil ones. Was God even in control of what was happening through Hitler and the Holocaust? Did that take him by surprise? Here's a great quote I came across. It should not be thought that God's inactivity in respect of wickedness signifies a concession of sovereignty to wickedness over the places in which it is found. In this very place, God will at the right time bring justice. Remember the seasons and times? He's governing the seasons and time, but there's going to be a time for the judgment. It doesn't mean it's going to happen right then. God is in control of those things. So you might be thinking, okay, Kevin, I follow so far. Yes, uh, man craves power. He abuses his power. God will judge him for it. But why does God allow it? We still really haven't answered that question. That, that might be, he really hasn't answered why. Well, that's what Solomon is going to do here in this next section. In verses 18 to 22, we're going to look at man's ultimate advantage from all this. What's his ultimate advantage? Look at verse 18. I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. Interesting. Concerning the condition of the sons of men. That word condition in the Hebrew is devra. Devra. And it means the cause or the manner or the reason. It's really referring back to the injustice of chapter, uh, verse uh, 16. The injustice is both, is two things. It's because of man, but it's also for man, 
right? Injustice happens because of man being in power, but it's also for man that they may see that they themselves are like animals. (laughs) Don't you love that? They're like animals. No, he's not saying that people are nothing more than animals. That's not what he's saying, but rather they're like animals. If you are placed in a position where you're to rule with wisdom like Solomon did and understanding on behalf of the people, then that is great. But if you ditch all that and you abuse your power, then you're no better off than the animal. You're pretty much alike. And the next two, two verses describe in what way? In what way are we like animals? Look at verse 19. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. So here's what he's talking about. The events, the events concerning both of them seem alike, right? Both men and horses are both killed by the same instruments of war. Especially when you watch the, the old ones where they're using the horses. As instruments. I mean, the horses are dying just as, just as much as the men, right? You're, they're both killed by the same instruments of war. Men and animals were both killed in the same judgment of the flood, weren't they? They were both died in the same way. And in fact, look what he says. One event happens to them both, right? It befalls them both. As one dies, so dies the other. And then notice what he says. Surely they all have one breath. They also have the same breath. The same breath animates animals that animates us. The same breath. I mean, look at what is described in Genesis chapter 7 during the flood, verses 21 to 22. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man. That just says flesh. But then it says, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. So it's not just the dust, the flesh, but it's also the breath, right? So what separates us? Well, they're made of dust, and so are we. They have the breath, and so do we. And so in this way, man has no advantage over animals. That's what he's saying. And that word advantage I mentioned in week one, is Mothar, Mothar. But some of your Bibles might translate it prophet. Um, We've seen that word prophet all through so far, but I want you to see it's a different word because the word prophet thus far has been your throne, and it means about um, what gain or what value is left over, but this is a different word used here, and so advantage is actually a good good, um, translation. It means superiority. How are we superior? We are superior to the animals, but how are we superior to the animals? If you ditch aside your wisdom, if you ditch aside understanding and just abuse power, you act like animals. And so nothing separates you. You're going to die like an animal, right? Because nothing separates you. You're on animal instinct. This is what he's saying. You have no advantage over animals. In fact, Psalm 49.20 illustrates this well. A man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beast that perish. A place of honor a place of power, a man that is there but doesn't use this, that doesn't understand, he's just like a beast that dies. It's the same concept. Solomon's taking the same idea. He, doesn't, he abuses their power. He doesn't act with understanding. And so you are no better off than an animal, And which is why he says, for all is vanity. It's all meaningless. And why really is there no advantage? Well, he goes on in verse 20. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men 
which goes upward, and the spirit of the animal, which goes to the earth. So first you have the events, right? The events are the same. You're both going to have the same, uh, die the, the same, the same way. Um, but here, the end is the same here. When, when you kind of look at how an animal dies and a person dies, there's not much of a difference, <laughs> right? He's going to bury it in the same plot of ground sometimes, some people, right? I'm going to be buried with my cat. Okay, right? They're going to be buried together. Some people are nodding. I'm not going to acknowledge that. We're both made. We're both made from the same dust, right? We both have the same breath, and so we both go to the same place, the dust. I'm just talking about this. Okay, the dust. As to their spirits, there is indeed a vast difference, obviously, but not a visible one. Not a visible one. Remember, how is Solomon looking at this? Horizontally. There's not a visible uh, difference there. And remember, Solomon is, is concerned with empirical evidence, evidence that you can see and handle and um, prove. So Solomon is thinking that way. In fact, his father, David, said this in Psalm 49, 14. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave, speaking of men. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave, far from their dwelling. Verse 15, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. So you see the two views there? From the outward, a man goes into a grave like a sheep. But then he goes, but I know that God's going to redeem me. He's going to redeem my soul from the power of the grave, from Sheol. So certainly there is a difference, but there is not a visible one. No living person can demonstrate a difference between animals and people by watching them as they die. They die the same way. They're laying the ground the same way. They return to the dust in the same way. So here, let's look at this. Let's back up and think about this from the beginning of chapter 3. If, if God is providentially preserving and governing the earthly activities of, of man, if he has a purpose even in allowing human injustices, like we see here in verses 16 to 20, if even he holds our destinies in his hands, like in verse 21, who, who knows the spirit of the sons of men? He's saying, you can't see where they go. That's up to God, right? Well, then what, what should our attitude be? Verse 22. So I perceived that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage, for who can bring him to see what will happen after? Who can bring him to see that? This is the third time he says nothing is better, right? There's nothing better. This is what you should do. You, you should just rejoice in your uh, works. And no one can bring you to see what will happen after. He, he's saying you can't get a glimpse into the afterlife. In fact, this one really helps me with those people that think you can. <laughs> because he says, who can do that? His point is, well, no one. No one can say, oh, oh I saw what it was like. Because Solomon says, no, no one can do that. You can't know what it's like. Empirically, we look at this, we say, there's no, no difference. I've got to just trust that the Lord is going to do right as the righteous judge with my soul there. And so how do we act on earth? How do we act on earth? Joyful confidence in the pursuit of earthly responsibilities and the pleasures they bring. There are pleasures that are given to us by God, and we're meant to enjoy those things, like we saw back in Verse 12 of chapter 3, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It's the gift of God. That's the idea. 
So he gets to a nice conclusion there, but he wants to return to his investigation here to consider the oppression, which will lead to an announcement regarding the value of man. Like taking all these things into consideration, how do we value man? Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. So man's value will be announced in this passage when we get to the end of it here. But he says first, look at this oppression. And oppression in the Old Testament, when you read it, guys, oppression covers a lot of things. It even covers cheating one's neighbor, defrauding him, or or, or robbing from him. It even covers uh, unjust gain, or preying upon the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the strangers that are in the land. Those are all covered under oppression, and the Old Testament Um, commands us not to oppress. When you look at Leviticus 19.13, it's very clear. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Right? If if he's owed something and you don't give it to him, you've oppressed him. You've oppressed him. In Zechariah chapter 7, verse 10, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. In fact, Solomon, he will write a proverb, a proverb uh, in chapter 14, verse 31. This is his own proverb. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. There's there's the uh, indictment against those who oppress. Hmm, You reproach your maker, but honor, honor will come to you if you have mercy on the needy. And so he is looking at this oppression taking place, right? It causes sadness, it causes tears, because on the earth, they don't have any comfort, right? Looking at these things, I mean, we, can, we can see these in all kinds of countries, can't we? We can see those being oppressed, and you're just wondering, well, who can help them? And it just causes such sadness and sorrow. In verse 2, he goes on, he says, Therefore I praise the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still Alive Because of the oppression that he sees and there's no relief, there's no comforter, he says it's just better to be dead. How's that for an outlook on, on life for you, huh? Despair, right? You have utter sorrow in verse 1. You have deep despair here in verse 2. And it doesn't get better in verse 3. Verse 3, yet better than both is he who has never existed, <laughs> who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. It would have better been better if that person had never been born than to be born and see these things happening. That's what he's saying. Now, this is admittedly a very grim view, but I want to remind you it's a view under the sun. Under the sun. Meaning if you're living and just looking at the affairs of man and the activities of man with no awareness of God's working behind the scenes and looking at man's power complex even specifically, that can make life not worth living. Remember, Solomon despaired of that earlier. I hated life, he said, looking at those things. It can make life not worth living. And so that certainly looks at one of those areas of seasons and times, right, that activities of man that he was talking about, time to kill, time to hate, time for war, all those things were in there. But what about what he's talking about next? He's going to look at the selfish condition of man, man's selfish condition, So not just those um, people that are in power and in authority, but what about just the the daily 
you know, stuff, the, the, the normal Joe or the normal person trying to just get ahead in life. Look at verse 4. Again, I saw that for all the toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. He's talking about the rat race here. I don't know if you use that phrase here, right? Um, climbing the ladder of success, the pursuit of success in, in business. It's going to be a, an evaluation and a comparison here between those who are in that rat race, race working hard versus those that don't do anything and are lazy. So look at the hard working here uh, person in verse 4, right? Skillful work, right? I saw that the toil and the skillful work, a man is envied. He's envied by his neighbor. He's saying underneath the hard work is a scramble for wealth and for power and prestige and promotion underneath all those things. Proverbs 27.4, another proverb of Solomon says, wrath is cruel and anger a torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy, right? Jealous of the one who's getting ahead of you. When I was in high school, I was in the choir, and I joined late. I wasn't in it when I first got into high school, but I, I joined, and there was this top tenor, and his name was Damon. And, and he was a good singer, and I didn't care. I just joined. And, and Damon was a great guy. And he sang well. And I began to get confident and, and sing well too, but I was number two. He was number one. And the school decided to do a school play. They did West Side Story. It was my favorite at the time, my favorite. He got the part of Tony. I got the part of Riff. I didn't really care because I kind of liked the part of Riff anyway. But Tony's the star. He got the, the starting role. We graduated. He went off to school. I don't know where. I went off to school and in my years at college, I got bit by the acting bug. You all know this. I wanted to be an actor, and I, I, I dropped out of school. And I went and pursued it. I got the uh, agent and the manager, and I was doing work in L.A., and after a couple years of that, I decided I wanted to go back to school at a particular school because they had a, a particular extension program. They would take you to New York for a, a whole semester um, for a, a focus on sort of you know, musical theater, which I loved. So I enrolled in the program, and I got in it, and I auditioned, and I got a scholarship. I thought, this is great. And I walked in, and who's the top tenor in the program? <laughs> Damon. He'd been there since he graduated high school. I was like, you, you're here. Hey, Damon. How you doing? Great. So I was there for all of a quarter, maybe, of school. Because it's in that time that God was working in my life, and he brought me out of that through a car accident, and... Um, I met uh, Jody, right, and we were, you know, kind of dating and, and things like that. But I still was acting. And so I remember I was auditioning for a show called Miss Saigon. And Miss Saigon was here a year ago. It was in Wales. It was at the stadium here. Um, it was on Broadway at the time. And, uh, and then the way auditions work, you audition, and then if, you know, they think you're in the cut, they'll, they'll bring you back for a callback, and they'll bring you back for a callback. And, you know, they go from, you know, 300 down to two, Right. And I got callback after callback after callback. And I finally got to this callback where I walked in and there were two. It was me and Damon. Oh, my hey, Damon. How, how are you? I had never even seen him at the auditions because, you know, they had hundreds of them and you have your slot. Like, what is this? And it was, it was the dance part of the audition. 
I was not a dancer. I, I, I would put on my thing, singer, actor, move well. But he had gone through that fine arts program. He could dance. So we both did the thing, and they don't tell you there. They go, okay, thank you. We'll call you, right? And so you leave. And I meet this beautiful woman, and I get married, and I um, want to move to New York still. And I enroll in the American Musical Dramatic Academy in New York. And I go to New York. I'm in the academy, and I'm on my way to class, which the classes were all in different parts of the city, and it's freezing. And I'm bundled up. And you can see this much of my face, right? I got this thing around my face. I'm just walking down the streets in New York, going to my class and just dodging feet as I go. And these feet come in front of me and I look up kind of, (laughs) Damon! (laughs) And he said the same thing. He said, Kevin, what are you doing here? I said, oh, well, you know, I got married and I'm in the American Musical Dramatic Academy. Yeah. What are you doing here? He's like, oh, I'm going to rehearsals for Miss Saigon. (laughs) Oh, you got the part. Oh, yeah, on, on Broadway, yeah. How good for you. Oh, it doesn't stop there. Three years in New York and moved back to L.A. I'm working at a studio workshop place where they bring in casting directors and, and agents that actors can pay to come and meet. I know it sounds cheesy that you would come pay to meet, but... It actually pays off because you can make a relationship with them. They can see your resume and those kind of things. I worked there. I had a job there. I got actually a role through that. Um, And one day, one of the actors that came in in the class that I was hosting and running with the agent was Damon. But I was here. I was like, well, hello, Damon. Have a seat. want you to meet this agent that you could possibly sign with. I have. Or the soap opera agent, you know, she could possibly help you get a role. I did. (laughs) I had built up this idea in my head that I was in competition with him. And in meeting him in L.A., I discovered he had written a play, and he cast me in the lead. I did the lead for him in his show that he wrote. Yeah. You talk about feeling pretty crummy. Like, oh. Damon had no idea there was this jealousy, envy, rivalry thing. But for me, I was like, Damon. I could become an astronaut and fly to the moon, and Damon would be there. This is what Solomon is talking about here. He's talking about the Damons in your life. That we just pursue this restless, you know, ridiculous Desire to outdo one another. It's a dog-eat-dog world. I've got to outclass this person and that person. Man is just selfish, is what he's saying. Man is selfish. I saw this, this envy that takes place. He says it's vanity, it's grasping for the wind. And look at his, his conclusions here. I mean, if, if man's toil originates in jealous ambition, if man's achievements like you said earlier, are likely to go to the inheritance of a fool, right? If if this all results in vanity, vanity, then then any hope or purpose in life or real gain, then you've got to be finding that in God. That's the only place to find it. You can't find it in any other way because that's man's selfish condition. That's just how we work because we're fallen creatures. But he goes on to give us the opposite person. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands, and consumes his own flesh, right? That's not the ambitious person. That's the dropout. 
He's completely indifferent about life. He's an underachiever. And look at his condition. It's described as cannibalism. He consumes his own flesh. Do you see that? Consumes his own flesh. Solomon writes a Proverbs about that in, in chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. This is laziness. Laziness brings uh, poverty. But this is also selfish because you have no desire to contribute to society, no desire to benefit the world in any way. And so you have the ambitious person who consumes the other person, and you have the lazy person who consumes himself. This is man. Welcome to earth, right? Where's the middle ground? Verse 6, here's the middle ground. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Solomon's solution is, is moderation. A handful literally means palm of the hand, that word, calf. Wisdom guides us to strive in life to do that, but to, to work, but to be content with just a handful. Like, this is okay, but I don't need to go, oh, but I could get more. The hand fulls, right? The hand fulls will be accompanied by toil, by grasping for the wind, but the one handful, tranquility, quietness, peace. Don't you love that? You're at peace with what I'm content. I'm content with just this, content. So both strivings, when you look at this, the one who's striving to get ahead and consuming his neighbor, the one that's just striving to be on his own and do nothing, Both of them are fundamentally anti-neighbor, aren't they? Anti-community, anti-people. The point of life from the workaholic's perspective is get ahead of one's neighbor, right? The point of of life from the lazy person is to get away from one's neighbor. (laughs) But neither is uh, is a perspective that is neighborly or um, has community. The church is a community. The church is a family, and we come to church not to be served, but to serve, right? That's why we, we come, and that's meant to be that way. We're meant to have relationship and community uh, in a church, and we should have the idea in place that we're here to love God first and love people, and those two categories are doing neither, <laughs> They're not really particularly caring about what God wants for them, and they really don't care about the other person, loving God or loving their neighbor. And so verses 7 through 12 kind of compare then loneliness and companionship, going from that lazy person who just could not compare about people or, or, or care about people or the aggressive one who just wants to stomp on people and get ahead. What about loneliness and companionship? What, what do we see here in verse 7? Well, then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He is neither son nor brother, yet there's no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. He has no companion. The word is second or, or other. He's without son. He's without brother. He makes himself a slave uh, to labor. He, he doesn't care about anyone else in life. He's content to be a loner and just get ahead. Psalm 127 verse 2 says, It is vain for you to rise up early, 
to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. The idea of who, who's just going, 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 you're just eating the bread of sorrows. Life isn't about just striving to succeed or to attain. Life is about relationships. Our relationship with God, our relationship with others. That's why the church is a great place for us to be, because you get to work those things out. Also notice, he never thinks he has enough, right? His eye is never satisfied with riches. He also has no excuse for, for doing this because he never asked the question, why am I doing this? <laughs> right? He never stops and goes, what, am I, is this the right thing? He denies himself the good. He never considers the folly of all his labor. Conversely, though, companionship, relationship, that brings blessing. That brings blessing in life. Look at verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Very simple little. Two are better than one. They have a reward. Um, No matter what they do, they're better than one. How is their labor rewarded? Well, verse 10 gives us that. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him. You have mutual help. Mutual help. If a man falls into sin, his friend will help to restore him with a spirit of meekness. If he falls into trouble, his friend will help to comfort him. You have to have relationships in life. As Christians, we can't be Lone Ranger Christians. We need the accountability. We need the mutual help. We have to have that. How about this in verse 11? Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? There's mutual warmth. I mean, you could just take this in the spiritual realm as well. Christians warm one another by provoking one another to, to love and good deeds, right? Hebrews 10.24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good deeds. We first have to consider one another. Consider them and then stir up love and good deeds. That warms the other person and it warms your heart as well. And also, we're united in strength. Verse 12, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. There's strength in numbers, isn't there? You can't be on your own. I need you, and you need me. We need each other. Often, that uh, verse is read in, in, in weddings, isn't it? A threefold cord is not quickly broken, but you have two. Well, who's the third cord? You got it. Jesus. We need the help. We need the companionship. And so we can't be about life stomping on people to get ahead, ignoring people. And we can't be about life, I'm just going to be a hermit and go retire on a mountainside somewhere. Ignoring people. You see the two extremes? He brings it together and says, companionship, there's, there's a lot of benefits to that. And I'll tell you, people ignore that in the church. They don't find church a priority. I got to tell you, so listen, <laughs> You have to have that. How are you going to get ahead on your own, he says. This is the wisest man who ever lived, by the way. I'll just remind you that. Wisest man. You need the mutual help. You need the the warmth that only believers can bring. Have you ever come to church just really down, but that one person had the right words of encouragement for you, warmed your heart? You need that. You got to have that. And we need the the strength. Hey, brother, I'm really struggling through this moment here. I'm going to be praying for you. I'm going to be calling you this week. I'll help hold you accountable. We got to have that. We've got to have that. So we looked at the companionship and, the, and uh, the loneliness compared there, and obviously it's better to have companionship. But ultimately, you can see you're the, 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 the bad side there, right? The man's selfish condition is we just rather care about ourselves. 
And he's showing the bad and then the positive. The third thing he's going to look at is man's popularity contest. I know that sounds kind of funny, but it is here. I haven't added it myself. But look at verse 13. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. So here he's going to kind of set up an idea of a story here. We can think of it that way. The poor man here, by his wisdom, uh, is preferred to a foolish king who who, um, is headstrong. Right, who won't who won't listen to advice? You can't uh, correct uh, correct them any any longer. And so you've got this this dichotomy happening. You've got the poor guy who comes in, uh, but he's wise. You got the foolish king who has the the position of power. Okay, this will help you with verses fourteen and fifteen because a lot of people get confused by it. So look at verse fourteen. For he, that poor man, comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. So he's speaking about that young person. There's not a, another young person, okay? You're comparing the young person to the, the old king, the foolish king, okay? So he came in. He was the second one, and everyone was standing with, with him. Can you think of anyone else, actually, that came out of prison to be king? Yeah, right? Joseph came out of prison to be king. Um, he was given the, the, the power of the kingdom, only second to Pharaoh, People came to him from all over the world, didn't they? All over the world. So just just get advice, get food. He was wise. But here we see this this pays off in this way. The wise person can rise to power. That's a good thing. But this also is vanity. How so? Look at verse 16. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Um, people are fickle, and they soon despise those things that they desired. They'll elect a president, and then next, the, later in the year go, oh, I don't like this guy, right? It'll be all about that person, and then next thing you know, they, they hate him. And a lot of it has to do with popularity. We're, we're, we're caught up in the popularity contest. When I was in high school, you had those popularity contests, the prom king and queen, or the winter formal king and queen. They would make these pronouncements of crowning them king and queen based on who was popular. Uh, people would just vote for the most popular person. There is a, a musical on Broadway that has a song called Popular. And I just wanted to share with you some of the lyrics because they're, it's quite interesting. When I see depressing creatures with unprepossessing features, I remind them on their own behalf to think of celebrated heads of state or specially great communicators. Did they have brains or knowledge? Don't make me laugh. Ah, they were popular. Please, it's all about popular. It's not about aptitude. It's the way you're viewed. So it's very shrewd to be very, very popular like me. (laughs) I like to like me at the end. The point is, is that even if one attains to power and prestige through humble means, like the poor person that was born in humble means, that had wisdom and, and came to a prominent position, it'll be short-lived because you can't rely upon the people because they're fickle. They'll soon rejoice in somebody else. So what is the point of all this? Well, man, he's looked at just the condition of man here and the world that we live in. They're going to abuse their, their, their power. They're just going to, to do it. They're going to just live in such a way as to um, only think about themselves and try to get, a, get ahead in life. And they're also just going to follow the next fad, 
right? Jump on the bandwagon. What's the point here? Well, man's power hungry. He's selfish. He's fickle. But you think about God, he is the opposite of all these things. He's all powerful, right? He's faithful. He's unchanging. We talked about that in the prayer meeting this morning. And I said, oh, well, going to look at that today. Man's opinions can change and go back and forth so easily. But God stays the same. He's the same today, yesterday, forever. And so we have nothing to, to worry about. And I thought I'd just take you to Hebrews chapter 12 as a way of closing this to remind us that ultimately we've got the great role model on how to live in this world. That's Jesus Christ. God is so good that he actually came to earth to live to show us how to do it. Because he realizes it's not not easy. None of us have it all down. But Jesus lived it so that we could look at his life. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, he says this, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You know, Jesus lived in this, or he saw all the same things, didn't he? If Solomon saw those things and Jesus came after his time, certainly those things were the same. And he could see the injustices. He could see the oppression of the, of the world. He could see the, he experienced it. We saw it all in the book of John, didn't it? Didn't we, right? Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the next thing, crucify him. Fickle, fickle. We just have to look at the Lord. What did he do? He endured. He endured such hostility. He just endured it because he knew who was really in control, his heavenly father. My encouragement to you is as Solomon paints this grim picture of life, first of all, it's accurate, right? We were all laughing and nodding our heads because we all relate. Like, yeah, that's our world, right? At the same time, he's trying to lift us ahead above that a bit to say, but there is a way out. There is a way out of that. We've got to look to uh, the one who came to earth to live in a way that we could just see this as an example and say, this, this is how I should live life. I've got to endure it, but we don't do it alone, right? We have the companionship of the, the, the fellowship of a church, and we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And so, brothers and sisters, we don't have anything to fear. That is just our world. That's the, the poem. Those are the activities of man under the sun, and God is governing and preserving all those things, ultimately for his glory and for your good. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your wonderful word. How vast, how rich is your word, Lord. So encouraging and so wonderful and so accurate, Lord, that we could read these words of Solomon and, and look at our world today and say, yeah, that's, that's our world. It's an accurate description of man. Nothing has changed. No, there's nothing new under the sun. We're still power hungry. We're still selfish. We're still fickle. But Lord, you never change. You are all powerful. Your, your power is greater than any of the powers of man. You've given power to man to govern and to rule. And you are unchanging. You're faithful. And God, we love you for that. And we just pray, Lord, as we have to endure the difficulties of these, this life, that we would look to the companionship the camaraderie, the accountability that we can have in a church, Lord, that we would draw close to one another for help in time of need. But also, Lord, we have you. Some people are not in a position to be in a church, yet they have you. They have your spirit. 
and you draw close to them in those times. And so, Lord, we have nothing to fret. We have nothing to worry about. And so I just pray, Lord, that we would continue to just trust in you and not in man. Thank you for this time in your word. We pray that you were glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.